0: Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. The angels of God, these glorious creatures, in their perfection, without sin, cannot look fully in the face of God, lest they be consumed. We come before the presence of this same God today. Pray that we will not be consumed. Consider with me Revelation chapter 4. If you're so inclined, I would even say, close your eyes and listen as I read. And see if you can envision what is spoken of here. Remember, Revelation is not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. It is visions given to the Apostle John. We're to see these things in our mind's eye. Hear now the inspired word of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Remember, as we approach this text, that John is the seer. He is the one who is being given visions from God. This is a vision. Remember, the the book of Revelation is filled with imagery, it's filled with symbolism. How do you describe glorious things such as this to a people such as us with such limited experience? The Apostle Paul went to the third heaven and he came back and he said, I saw things there which it was not lawful for me to utter. And perhaps the. Meaning there, as well as he wasn't permitted to speak of the things that he saw, was that he couldn't even fully grasp or understand the things that he saw. We're talking about the almighty God, the creator of the universe. We're talking about one who is holy, thrice holy. He is other than us. And we have this glorious scene here in this throne room with all of this vivid imagery so that we can have just a little glimpse, a little glimpse. I heard uh, in a sermon by D.A. Carson, he said, if you go out into the jungles to a tribe that has never been touched by technology and you try to explain to them something like electricity, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? said you might say something like, we have in our land a force, and it's somewhat like spirit. And we channel this force from a big mud hut through hard things that are like vines, except they're not vines because we make them. And we... Run that through these hard things like vines, which are attached to trees, except they're not really like your trees because we cut them down and take off all the branches and then put them back up. But... And we run them into our huts where it's channeled into a clear globe like the sun and this lights our homes. He says how do you describe things to people like this and and is it if they if they couldn't grasp it as we explain it to them and the way we might describe it to ourselves is it because they're stupid well no it's just that they have a lack of experience they have a lack of experience so what about what about us and our experience with the holy god you see god has given us pictures like this to try to help us understand because of our lack of experience. And the book of Revelation is a perfect genre for this because God describes for us in these vivid pictures and imagery things that are outside of our human experience oftentimes. Now, I want us to realize as we consider chapter 4, That chapter 4 is to chapter 5 what the setting is to the drama. Chapter 4 is the setting. And it all leads up to the drama of the scroll. And who is worthy to open the scroll. So in order to properly understand the drama that is about to unfold. We've got to grasp the setting here. And so... Today as as I preach this message, remember there's another one coming. Just remember there's another message coming. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, John said. This is apocalyptic language for John having a vision. He's being given a vision by God. He is probably not here in any way, shape, or form literally being transported into the literal heavens. He is being transported in a vision, The majority of the things which we are about to see in this setting are images. They're figurative in order to describe spiritual realities. Now, there are some who have somewhat fancifully, I believe, and making a, a big stretch, said that they say when... It says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place afterwards, that this refers to the the rapture of the church. Well, we have to really stretch it in order to get that because, again, it is common in apocalyptic literature, which this is the genre of this type of literature, it is very common in apocalyptic literature for the seer, the one who is being given the vision, to be caught up. It to be described as him being caught up and then to see heavenly things. Immediately it says that John was in the spirit. And what did he see here? A throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like and emerald. As, as we go on and as we put together chapters 4 and 5, what we see here is this, that there's this picture of a throne. And one sitting on the throne who is never described in physical terms with physical characteristics. The only hint of that that we see is the word hand in chapter 5 but God is described by these vivid colors and so envision this with me for a moment a dais circular raised platform and a throne in the midst of that platform and glorious light radiating out from that throne in white and in green or white and red colors and around the throne is shaped like a a bow, if you will, a full rainbow around the throne, flashing with the color of the purest and most priceless emeralds. And closest in proximity to that throne of the creatures are four glorious creatures who are described as having Eyes all over their bodies. Covered with eyes. They have six wings. And they have these various faces. And we'll look at those in detail in a minute. So here are these creatures. And they are closest in proximity at this point to he who sits upon the throne. And then you work your way outward A little bit further, and there are 24 thrones that encircle this main throne, and these 24 elders sit upon those thrones. Probably before we get to the 24 elders, we also see a, and we'll describe this in more detail what it really looks like, it says a sea of crystal, and then it mentions seven lamps, so it's like... A menorah with seven lights upon it. Then these 24 elders. And then the next circle outward from chapter 5. It says that there's a host of angels. And then the next circle outward from that. Is all of creation. All human beings. And all creatures. And all of creation. So you see how it works its way from the center of the throne where God sits to these four creatures and then these 24 elders and then a host of angels. Redeemed men, I believe, is another group there and then all the host of creation. So it's working outward from the center of the throne. What I want us to see as we as we work through this kind of at the heart of this and as we look at the imagery here and the depictions, there's some difference among the commentators about who are the 24 elders, and et cetera, et cetera. But remember, in these scenes that we see in the book of Revelation, there's a main point. We can get the point. We can see the big picture. The big picture here is that the transcendent, eternal, sovereign, creator of heaven and earth, rules over all creatures and all creation from His throne. And from His throne He sees all. There is nothing hidden from Him. All is exposed to the eyes of Him with whom we have to give an account. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Again, again, How do you describe God? He told Moses, he said, you cannot see my face and live. You know, we, we sing the hymn. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry weary land. He hideth my life in the depth of his love and covers me there with his hand. Read the account of Moses saying, God, I want to see your glory. And God says to him, No one can see my face and live. And he says, I will pass by you in my glory and I will cover you with my hand. Why? Because if Moses saw the full glory of God, he would be consumed. We're talking about the almighty God. We cannot look upon him in his full glory without being consumed Brother Rick read from us or to us from Isaiah, and Isaiah sees the glory of God in that temple, in that vision that he has. And what does he do? What does he do? Does he say, Oh, hi, buddy? Run up and shake hands with God. He falls and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. When people have an encounter, with even a glimpse of the glory of God, they are on their faces before God. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He is magnificent. And here, the imagery is of beautiful stones. When it talks about the jasper here, the quali- the, the way that they uh, categorize precious stones back at that time are a little bit different than us, but this would be referring probably to a diamond or an opal. It's referring to a white-colored gem. And then when it says a Sardius stone, it's talking about a red-colored precious stone, and these were mined in the city of Sardius, and that's why they were called this. But, you know, you think about, have, have you ever seen beautiful gems And the light is refracted through those gems and it sets sets up sparkles and rainbows. Perhaps, ladies, you have a beautiful diamond that, if you're married and it was given to you as an engagement ring and you can turn it so the light hits it just right and the light refracts through that and you'll have rainbows or whatever else sparkling. My wife likes rainbows. And I gave her... My class ring when we were courting, and she would use that with the light, and it would refract those rainbows everywhere and then shine them just in your eye, just perfectly, and you could see rainbow. But it's like, whoa, that's bright, but it's beautiful at the same time. Think about this here is God, and He is being described with these beautiful colors, and they're refracting from the throne, and this emerald circle around the throne it's beautiful green so here are these beautiful beautiful colors and they're almost blinding in their intensity and in their beauty and in their glory and this is this is how god is described here this is how god is described d.a. carson says this how do you describe a god whose passionate love is warmer Than the hottest fire, whose purity is greater than that of driven snow, who is more nourishing than the best of foods, who is more tender than the kindest and gentlest mother, who is more powerful than all of nature unleashed in the most violent of storms. How do you describe a God like this? Around the throne then were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. One of the things that we should see from this is that the throne from which God reigns is the throne that rules all thrones. what do we we mean and what do the scriptures mean when it says Jesus is, God is king of kings and Lord of lords. It means that there is one throne to rule them all. God rules over all. And here we see these elders and they are on thrones. And on these thrones... As they sit, they're clothed in white robes and they have crowns of gold on their heads. And we'll see as we progress exactly what they're doing with those crowns and what they're doing on those thrones. But we ask the question here, who who are these 24? Who are these 24? And this is where we have some differences of opinion when you look at the various commentators. The two main... Differences of opinion are that these are referring to a a higher order of angel or they're referring to representatives of God's people. Men who are representative of God's people. And their case is made for both of those. When we look at what these elders are saying, if you look down to verse 11, you're worthy O Lord to receive power and glory and honor for for you created all things. And then we see these elders again in chapter 5 and verse 9, and they sing a new song saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed." And the New King James and the King James will say You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, if you have the English Standard Version or another version, you might have a slightly different reading in which the elders are not saying you have redeemed us, but you've redeemed men. So, we do need to know that there's a a textual variant here, and so there's a slightly different reading. If it is the fact that the stream of manuscript evidence from the King James and New King James is accurate, then that settles the question, right? Because did Jesus die to redeem angels? No. So this would have to be referring to men. But there are those that make a case that these are angels and they'll point out things like the way that one of these is addressed is a way that only angels are addressed in such a way and that when we see another image and these are holding a bowl of incense, which is the prayers of the saints, that we don't see imagery in Revelation ever depicting the saints' prayers as being offered to God by another human. And so they'll make a case for angels or a case will be made for these being representatives. I'm going to say this right away, as we look at the big picture, at the big picture, I'm going to give my opinion on this, but it doesn't affect the big picture one way or the other. It doesn't affect the big picture one way or the other. And we'll talk about what that big picture is in just a moment. But I would agree with the position outlined by uh, Stephen Gregg When he outlines the ideal or spiritual view of Revelation at this point, he says this. The 24 elders are the celestial representatives of all the redeemed, glorified, and enthroned who worship continuously. Their white robes, he says, symbolize their purity. Their crowns suggest victory and joy more than political authority, because the word for crown here in Greek is stephanos. The number, he mentions, 24, recalls the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Remember, the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They're they're symbolic. Unless we can find evidence that they are absolutely not symbolic, we should read them as symbolic because this is a symbolic form of literature, the apocalyptic form of literature. And 24 is 12 times 2 and so you have I believe you're represented both the saints from the Old Testament and the New Testament in these elders on the throne because you think of the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles very significant number to God in his choosing of leaders of his peoples so I believe referring I believe these 24 are representatives of the people of God. Now, whether they be angelic representatives or human representatives, harder to determine. But I believe they're representatives of the people of God. And then... What is, the, what is the atmosphere in this setting? Remember, we've already talked about the, the glorious colors coming off of the throne. But then, what else do we see here? From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Lightnings and thunderings and voices. Have you ever been caught in a thunderstorm? I mean a real thunderstorm. Have you ever been in a severe storm and it was the type of storm that you're not just standing there saying, "Oh, that's pretty. But you're like, I'm going to die. where lightning is striking. Have you ever seen lightning strike a tree? In the aftermath of that, those radial strips of the flesh of that tree, as trees are blown apart and split in two, and then sometimes that the electricity surging through that tree rips out Radial strips from that and blows that bark in those shrapnel pieces of wood. Sometimes dozens of feet in a circumference around that tree. Think about Mount Sinai. What was the atmosphere like at Mount Sinai? Remember, there was thunderings and lightnings and a cloud which covered the mountain and what did the people do the people like cool cool selfie me in the mountain i mean they were trembling and quaking before the glory of god manifested there in that place D.A. Carson pointed out, you see, before this nuclear age, the most magnificent display of power that people had ever seen besides God himself was nature unleashed. Do you get the picture here, From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. Which are the seven spirits of God. Now these uh, seven spirits of God have already been mentioned in chapter 1. And there are different opinions again in regard to this. But I, I believe that this is referring to the Holy Spirit himself. Not seven separate spirits, but the Holy Spirit himself and seven of his qualities or characteristics. (coughs) And one of the reasons I think that is, we look back at the Old Testament, like in Isaiah chapter 11, and it speaks about the, the Messiah who would come. It mentions seven different characteristics of the spirit that would be upon the Messiah. And he would have the spirit of wisdom, etc., etc. And so I believe this is referring to the Holy Spirit there in his presence with God the Father around this throne. There's seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, also it says was a sea of glass like crystal like a sea of a sea of glass-like crystal this should also i think bring to mind to us an old testament setting where there was a candlestick with fires burning upon it where there was a, a laver that was filled with water. The tabernacle itself. The holiest presence of God being in that tabernacle. And in that instance, the high priest could only go in once a year. And if he messed up in anything and going in there, he was struck dead. This wasn't somewhere that you just sauntered into. Notice it says there was a sea of, of glass like crystal. Now, you don't think of glass like we think of glass. Remember, this was written in the first century. They didn't have crystal clear transparent glass like we have. All the glass that we found in archaeological digs and whatnot left over from that era, it's... It's translucent. It's opaque. It it lets some light through, but you can't just see through it like we do. So some people, some commentators have said that this sea of glass represents the idea that God from the throne sees everything because he's looking down through this perfectly clear lake and looking upon the world below, but that wouldn't... That wouldn't fit the historical context whatsoever. And also, in apocalyptic literature and in the Old Testament, the imagery for God's omniscience is eyeballs. It's eyes everywhere. So we see that represented in these creatures around the throne who have eyes all over them. That's symbolizing omniscience from the throne. The scriptures say in the Proverbs, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So I don't think that this sea here represents God's omniscience. I think we already have that imagery in the text. So with the, the type of glass like crystal that would have been familiar to the original readers and hearers of this. It would have been refractory in the sense that with these lightnings and with these glorious colors streaming off of the throne. That it would have been hitting this sea of glass and sparking upwards. So all of this again to help us see this big picture of this scene filled with light, filled with sound. Remember, as well as you think about this, and it mentions it as a sea, a sea. The scriptures, in particular, apocalyptic literature, uses the sea to symbolize turmoil, to symbolize. Fear, turmoil, disrest, sometimes even sinfulness. In the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, if you look over to chapter 21, and verse 1, It says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. There was no more sea. Uh, Look back to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57 and verse 20. It says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. It's interesting in the vision given to Daniel when he sees the beasts. And in Revelation, when it mentions the beast, it says that they come up from the sea. They come up from the sea. All of this, as we consider the imagery or the symbolism, fits with the the Jewish historical context. You see, to the to the Jews, the sea was a frightening and a deadly place. It was frightening. It was deadly. Again, uh, I'll reference D. A. Carson. He said he said the idea of you know this. The sea and going down to the sea and being taken up in a ship and going out onto the sea. He said, That idea is Brit. See, he spent like nine years in Great Britain. He says, That idea is Brit. That's not Bible. He said, The Jews, when they, you think about even Solomon and building sailing vessels, they hired soldiers, sailors to come in. They didn't send their own people out to sail the vessels. They had little fishing boats, but that was about it. See, to the Jewish people, the sea was a frightening place. So you see how this fits in again to the big, the big picture. What, what we're seeing here, layer upon layer upon layer, is the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. The inapproachability of God. And it's all the setting. It's setting it up. For chapter 5. So layer upon layer upon layer. You don't just walk up to this throne. And shake hands with the guy sitting on it. Right? Right? This is the setting. It's setting it all up for what's to come. The four creatures are depicted as well. Back in our text... And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Trying to Try and envision <coughs> that for a moment. <laughs> here, Here are creatures. They've got six wings. They have faces. One is like a lion. One is like a calf. One is like an eagle. One is like a man. They've got eyeballs everywhere, even under their wings. Symbolism. Symbolism. Imagery. The descriptions of these creatures are actually combined from Ezekiel and Isaiah. You have in Ezekiel creatures, but they have four faces. And they're the cherubim. Four faces, like these four living creatures, the eagle and the lion and the calf, and face like a man. These creatures, it just mentions one face. Then from Isaiah, the seraphim there, the burning ones, have six wings. So these heavenly creatures here are a combination of of those two. And, again, I I really think as we're speaking about this, thinking about this, we're talking, again, about imagery. We're talking about symbolism. The eyes, eyeballs everywhere. Is is this speaking about a real creature that's got eyeballs everywhere? The the symbolism is just too poignant. It's just too prominent there not to be symbolism. (laughs) It's referring to... Being able to see everything. God from his throne sees all. But think about think about these creatures. It says there were four. Full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. To the Jewish people, as to us, the lion was the king of the beasts. So it represented... Kingship, strength, nobility. The second living creature was like a calf, an oxen, which would represent strength. So rule, nobility, strength. The third living creature had a face like a man. What do you think that would represent? Well, that would represent intelligence. Intelligence compared to some other living creatures, at least, right? Like D.A. Carson says, well, if you look at a slug, <laughs> we look a little bit more intelligent than a slug. But representing intelligence. And then the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And it's fascinating. They're in the in the Near East at that time. Flying eagle could be a representation, actually, even of compassion and of gentleness now we think about eagles and we think about the united states of america and then whatever you think about the united states of america when you think about an eagle but remember we've got to go back and get in their shoes if we're going to understand this properly we can't see united states of america here flying eagle there's no no way in the world that that's what this could represent There was a type of eagle that, when it came time for the little chick to spread its wings, it would be pushed out of the nest by the mother eagle, and the father eagle would be flying below. Just in case they had estimated wrongly in regard to this little eagle's abilities. And if the little eagle began to plummet downward, the father eagle would soar underneath that little eagle and catch it on its back. And you know, the scriptures talk about the imagery that God has borne us up on eagles' wings. So this imagery, I believe, represents the compassion of God. As he rules from his throne, he sees all. He rules in nobility and in strength and in intelligence and compassion. The throne rules over all. And these four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes around and within. And what do they do? They do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God on the throne, worthy of unceasing adoration and praise from the highest rankings of beings in the universe is being depicted here. Unceasing praise for the Almighty God. As we put together the description of, These descriptive words about God that these these creatures are proclaiming. What we see here is that it speaks of God as the transcendent, thrice holy, eternal, sovereign creator and sustainer of all. Ruling over the universe from his throne in unapproachable glory. God, the transcendent, thrice holy, eternal, sovereign creator and sustainer of all, rules the universe from his throne in unapproachable glory. That's what's being depicted here. Notice it says, holy, holy, holy. Whenever something is repeated in the scripture, it is done so for emphasis. Jesus, when speaking to people, would say, I like the King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, truly, truly. If you heard truly, truly, your ears perk up. You're like something something important is coming here. The letter three or the number three is so symbolic and it's throughout Revelation in many different ways. In pairings of three, notice holy, 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 Lord, God, almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see it over and over again. Three represents the Trinity in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. What does the word holy mean? In reference to God, it means holy. That he is other. He's not us. He is other. He's transcendent. He's above us. He's removed from us. He is not affected by us, tainted by us, corrupted by us in any way, shape, or form. The, the whole picture here is a picture of transcendence. God being above us. And beyond us. He's holy. You think about the tabernacle. And they had the sacred vessels. They had the, the platters and the bowls. That the various offerings would be placed in. And You know the priest just didn't grab one of those. And go home and eat their Cheerios out of it in the morning. Right? These things were consecrated. They were set apart for holy use. They were not common. You know, back in those days, they didn't have toilets. They had pots. Pots were for common use. They had things that they used them for in a common way. But sacred vessels, holy vessels, were set apart, and you would never dare. You would never dare to use A sacred vessel for a common use. So it indicates a a separateness, a sacredness, a setting apart. God is the thrice holy God. He is separate. He is sacred. He is set apart from us. It also represents moral purity. The scriptures say that God is of too great purity to even look upon sin, He can't even look upon sin with a hint of favor. The scriptures say that he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Psalm 113, turn there for a moment. Psalm 113, and we'll begin with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is Is to be praised. Do we see that in Revelation chapter 4? That constantly the Lord is being praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. God has to humble himself to view things that we look up at and stand and fall down in awe of. Have you ever looked up at the vast expanse of the heavens above us and you were just in awe? God has to humble himself to look down upon the very things that we look up at in awe. He's above all the nations. He is glorified transcendent, holy and separate from all. Is there anyone or anything to which we can compare God? (laughs) You know, again, God in His graciousness in the scriptures uses metaphors and similes. You know what metaphors and similes are? You know, metaphor is when we figuratively say something is something else, Simile is when we'll figuratively say something is like something or as something else. God has to communicate himself to us in that type of language because he is so holy, he is so transcendent. So when the scriptures say he is a rock, well it doesn't mean that he's a big chunk of granite sitting there, Right? But it's it's describing his characteristic of of his strength, his fortitude, and that he is someone that you can run to, and the storms and the, the waves will not move him. But again, God has to humble himself to communicate to us in such a way. Because we're so different than him. In our text, these creatures are saying that you are worthy, O God, to receive power and honor and glory because you created all things and everything exists by your power. It says of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were made by him and for him, and by him all things consist or held together. God holds everything together. Why is it that this entire universe doesn't just crumble into dust, just go poof? Why is it that we haven't had the apocalypse of giant asteroids smashing the earth and blowing it to bits? It's because God sustains. God holds it all together. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul said... For in him we live and move and have our being. (laughs) He is the thrice holy, transcendent, eternal, sovereign of the universe, who created all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. Bruce Waldke says this, God's transcendence as creator and sustainer of the world assures his sovereign supremacy, his freedom to enact his will. Chance does not rule, but the Lord rules chance. There are no other gods, he says, to compete with him. And earthbound mortals cannot thwart his will and purposes. The wicked who renounce and or disregard his rule are obviously fools. You know, as we look at the the big picture of the book of Revelation, again, to whom was it given? It was given to people who were facing or going to face persecution for the faith. It's given to them so that they will recognize that God rules over all creation and will bring it to its accomplished purpose in his own timing. And all of this in Revelation five, 4 is the setting. And then we see the drama carried out as John weeps because there is no one found in the entire universe to open the scroll. And John weeps bitterly. And then, one is worthy. And then, in chapter 6, he un unseals the various seals on the scroll, and all kinds of disaster breaks loose upon the earth. But what is the picture there? God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over everything. Sovereign over everything. And for those who are His, things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. We look around us. Many look around us at our nation today and say, we're going to hell in a handbasket. But God says, things are not as they seem. I am sovereign. And although wickedness may prosper in a land... And God's people ought to weep and mourn over the wickedness of their people. God says, don't lose hope, overcome. I am sovereign. I rule the universe from the throne. And all of these things come at my decree. There is nothing that will take place that has caught me by surprise or will thwart my sovereign purpose. That's the God that we worship. Isaiah 40.22 says. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. We're like grasshoppers. You know, You know something that's absolutely fascinating to me. There's a great hymn, and it's a hymn which we sing, and it's a hymn which has transcended the ages, transcended cultures. It's the hymn that is sung by some of the most perverted musicians on the face of the earth, but yet they'll still sing it, and they sing it without really believing it or having a clue what they're really singing. It's Amazing Grace. Everybody sings Amazing Grace. Well, I don't know if Michael Jackson sang Amazing Grace, but probably he did. I'd probably go look it up, and he probably sang Amazing Grace at one point in his life, and it's recorded out there somewhere. Everybody sings Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And they sing it, but they don't believe it. (laughs) Do they believe they're grasshoppers? In God's sight, do they believe that they're worms? Do they believe they're a wretch? No, they don't. They don't have a clue. They exalt themselves. We exalt ourselves. That is our tendency. It's to shake our puny little grasshopper fists at the throne. (laughs) But God is sovereign. If we were to look on him in his full glory, we would just be blown into dust. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and look at these stars. He who created them, he leads them forth, he calls them all by name, and not one of them is missing. And he has to humble himself to even look at us grasshoppers down here. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is transcendent. He's eternal. He has never had a beginning, and he will never have an end. There is nothing in our experience like him That we can truly say, this is God. R.C. Sproul says this in his book, Choosing My Religion. If you don't delight in the fact that your father is holy, 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 then you are spiritually dead. You may be in a church, you may go to a Christian school, but if there is no delight in your soul for the holiness of God, you don't know God, you don't (coughs) love God, you're out of touch with God. You're asleep to his character. You see those who are gods. Worship him for his holiness. Now. I told you there's another message coming. (laughs) Because if God is just. Transcendent. But he is not also imminent. If he is just above us and beyond us. And removed from us and other than us. But he's not with us and reaching out to us and communicating with us in a way that can be understood, then we're all we're all doomed. We're all doomed. It's like it's like it, as if we were chained with unbreakable chains encircling our bodies, holding us tightly as we wasted away with cancer or heart disease. And there the cure was on top of a shelf in our cell, and we could never reach it. So praise God, there's another message coming. But, but, but... If we don't understand the holiness of God. And he is not a tame lion. And he is a consuming fire. And he is the God with whom we have to do. Then we'll, we will presume upon him. We will. Exalt ourselves. And we will be consumed by him in wrath. Here, here's the reality. I, I spent. I 40 minutes at the jail Tuesday night trying to convince the men there of the problem. And then spent about 10 minutes with the solution. Because if they don't grasp the problem, they don't grasp the solution. There's no way to. The problem is, as God told Moses, He said, I will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit the wicked. God is so holy, so pure, so righteous that He cannot accept, tolerate sin. And He says, I will not simply forgive the wicked. It won't happen. Well, why is that a problem? Do we have any wicked people in here today? Say amen. 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 We're wicked. Every one of us has broken the commandments of God. Not just once, in multiple ways. Not just ignorantly, but deliberately we've done it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and that's talking about eternal punishment from God. But God is so pure, so transcendent, so holy, so righteous, that He cannot tolerate sin. He will not acquit the wicked. That's a problem. That's a problem. And unless people see the problem, they will not appreciate the Savior. Unless people see God high and lifted up and exalted, unless they recognize that you don't just saunter into His presence, They'll never appreciate the solution. One of the deepest, deepest, deepest sins and dangers in churches today is that people do not appreciate, understand the holiness of Almighty God. They don't appreciate the distance between them and God. They do not see themselves as wretches, as worms. They may even stand up and sing it. In some of the hymns, some of the uh, more modern hymnals, that that statement, uh, would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? They take that worm part out of there. You don't want to bruise our tender self-esteem. But if we don't recognize that we are worms, Groveling in the sewage of our sin before an almighty God, we cannot appreciate him and look upward to him and seek his forgiveness and his grace in Christ. God is the creator of all and because he's the creator of all, He owns it all. And he can do with it whatever he wants to. He and his love created us, sustains us, and calls us unto himself. But may we never think that he needs us. He doesn't need us. Augustine said this in his confessions. You are my Lord because you have no need of my goodness. There was a poem that was written and I don't have the exact quotation. So I paraphrase. If God were the type of God who needed us. He could not have created us. If God were the type of God that he needed us, he could not have created us. If he were a needy being, he would not be an all powerful being who could create everything from nothing. He is high and lifted up. Have you delighted in his holiness and his purity? And have you bowed before him? Have you had an experience before the almighty God where you have said, woe is me for I am undone? I'm a person of sinful character. If you've never grieved over your sin, then you've never had an encounter with the living God. But be be encouraged because A.W. Tozer said this. He said, grieving over sin and wrestling with sin, far from being an evidence of lack of sanctification, is in fact very often an evidence of sanctification. Because the more we recognize the holiness and transcendence, the purity of Almighty God, and compare ourselves to Him, we will see our sin in the light that God has seen it. And then next week with the lord's help we're going to see the lamb and he who is worthy but may today we bow at the feet of the holy god father we thank you for your word that we could examine today thank you for your character and nature that you are absolutely holy i pray that we will not trifle with you we won't presume upon you we won't think that we can treat you as just one of us, one of the good old boys. May we not look at it like me and the big man upstairs, just me and God hanging out. No, may we be floored by your holiness, O God. And may we, when we have just caused, may we tremble before you. And may we stand in awe of you. I pray this in Jesus' name and ask also, Lord, that you would bless as we partake of this meal together. Amen.